Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Well, here we are again in a new home, Andrew. New home, a new year and a new scandal. A new scandal and a new guest. And I'd love to introduce Andy by actually reading something about him that I just found on the internet. And it's this. I'd like to thank the TV journalist Andy Webb for his tireless professionalism in bringing the Bashir Panorama scandal to light. If he hadn't pursued this story for well over a decade and shared his findings with me last October, today's findings wouldn't have surfaced. The words of Diana's brother, Charles Spencer. Gosh. So yeah. yes, again, we're doing a royal story. We did say we would have a break from royal stories, but... To be honest, the chance to talk to Andy was too good to pass And it's on. more than that. It's a story of a cover-up and how the establishment covers up and indeed covers up, covers up. A cover-up of a cover-up of a cover-up. And, and yeah, maybe not about the royal family at all. Maybe actually about another great British creaking institution, yeah. the BBC. Anyway, welcome, Andy. Mm, not yeah. at all. Well, no, we're honoured to have you. For that uh, build-up. And indeed to um, Bill Spencer, who I think... I, I, I think, you know, here we are, journalists, and, and we like to learn things uh, that we didn't know before. And I think in this whole process, he 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 has learned a lot that he didn't know before. And that is why, I mean, he's kind enough to say things like that, you know. Yeah. I think a lot of people won't know what this is all about. So maybe, I mean, Phil, do you want to sort of set the scene? Well, maybe Andy can talk us through it in more detail. But um, let's go back to the 90s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Panorama. Probably Britain's most prestigious current affairs show. I was lucky enough to work on it. One of my colleagues was a certain Martin Bashir, mm-hmm. a young, rising, ambitious, hungry reporter. Very charming. Very, very fun company. Would could 
talk the birds with the trees, you know. And if you had a, an interviewee who was having doubts, Martin would have them eating out of his hand. So, which is interesting background, I think. Mm, mm. Um, and then, as we all know, a couple of years later, he gets, well, the scoop of the century. He gets to talk to Diana and she bears her soul on international television, makes his career, changes the trajectory of her life, causes another of our friends, Patrick Jefferson, to resign from his role, um, who's been on our program a few weeks ago talking about this. Um, and yes, many people believe sets her on the road to Paris. That's right. I mean, I, I've spoken at length to uh, Patrick Jefferson. As you say, he was Diana's uh, private private secretary and indeed to um, Earl Spencer about this. And both of them, and, and what they say has to be, I think, taken seriously because of you know yeah. the, the, the place in her life she occupied. They both say that one can draw a line from Panorama to the, the, the Paris underpass. And, and what they mean by that is that... You know, I think the word I use is that Diana's life post the Panorama interview in some way became sort of untethered in a way that she, um, once she had been, and the word I used with Patrick and he agreed with was was really programmed to believe a certain, you know, set of beliefs about the, the royal family. Uh, she wasn't comfortable at all. Um it, being surrounded by that royal carapace and okay so if, if that's if they're not providing your security and and prince harry has been talking endlessly about the need for security it is an absolute preoccupation of people in, in, you know in that in that sphere um she put herself in the hands of what one can only describe as a kind of gimcrack enterprise whereby it seems a drunken driver was speeding and and crashes the car mm. and that I think is the line between the two that um, Diana was never deprogrammed, and I think, and we'll 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 you, you're setting out Phil, you know, very well the basis for this, but um, the why, <laughs> what I think is that maybe the kernel of this 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 story that hasn't really been explored as fully as it might be thus far was identified absolutely brilliantly and specifically by Prince William in his um, in that remarkable address that he made when the Dyson report, which was the inquiry into what had gone on, where, on the day of the publication of that, Prince William, extraordinary situation where he delivered, you know, we, we all saw it and remember it, um, a very moving you know, mini, mini speech. But what he absolutely pinpointed was that it was, if you like, the failure of the BBC to observe its duty of care to Diana once they knew that something had gone terribly wrong, there had been forgeries, there had been lies. Um, had they observed that duty of care to her, who knows what had, mm. Who knows what might have happened? Well, it is interesting looking back. I mean, I was actually no longer on the programme when that happened, that mm. interview happened. Uh, but I was very good friends with Tom Mangold, mm -hmm. who was a top reporter there, Absolutely. Harry Dean, who was deputy editor or had been deputy editor, um, and indeed with Mark Killick, who I'd, and I worked with all three of them. In fact, I'd worked with them all in the year, I think, of that of the, of the panorama. Um, within weeks, there were stories, gossip in our business, that something wasn't right. Um, the first thing that emerged is that there was the talk, talk of a, f a bank statement had been uh, forged or manipulated or changed, and that had somehow been used to get Diana's confidence. Um, and as we now know, uh, the, the, the three men who I just named 
and indeed I think also the graphic designer, took these issues to the editor of the show, Steve Hewlett, and were given pretty short shrift. And then, again, within weeks, they're being briefed against. And people are saying, oh, jealous colleagues. You know, and, and it's all wrong. And, and, and if Martin crossed the line, he'll be reprimanded, but it wasn't really important. And that's kind of where it sat for years. I, I mean, just to explain to the readers, mm-hmm. I mean, what was this forged check about? It was about gaining her trust, wasn't it? And, well, maybe and, Andy should explain. Well, it yeah. was really um, about gaining the, um, gaining, <laughs> gaining the trust of her brother. Earl Spencer, in order to gain an introduction and, a, if you like, a sort of um, recommendation to Diana. And I'm, I'm really, I mean, there are various accounts of who said what to who and who did what. I mean, I'm really um, quoting the official, you know, version as, as, as found by Lord Dyson himself. And he accepted that what Bashir had done was um, fabricate two bank statements in particular, two bank, well, they they were fakes, they were forgeries, but they were pretending to be bank statements belonging to a man called Alan Waller, who had previously been head of security for Earl Spencer. They had fallen out. um, And it was um, Bashir's story was that he had been given uh, a copy of Mr. Waller's statement that had arrived at Earl Spencer's um, home, Waller having gone, and this is a letter that you know was on the corner of the in the hall or whatever. Bashir claimed that Spencer gave him the bank statement for reasons that we're not quite clear about, and he then um, <laughs> this is it, it's kind of really weird. But Bashir's story was that he, for research purposes, took the basic information from this statement that he claimed he'd been given by Spencer and then had a fake statement put together with figures in it that he came up with himself. And and, and the statement was to, to demonstrate payments from, in one case, News International to Mr. Waller. That was, you know, allegedly payment for stories. And the other payment would have been much more sinister. It was from a Jersey-based corporation that we're told Bashir suggested was actually the security services um, based in Jersey, because that sounds all very spooky and, and weird. But the security services paying Waller for information as well. The, these are what were, we know, presented to um, Earl Spencer by Bashir as evidence that, that Martin Bashir had peerless contacts within the within the security services, et cetera, et cetera. So if he could find this out, this sort of important stuff out, then um, it would be absolutely worth Diana talking to him because she, in turn, was very, very worried about, you know, um, surveillance and so on. So that, and that she might be killed in an accident. Well, <laughs> absolutely. Um, what subsequently happened was, yes, um, Earl Spencer was initially impressed by um, Martin Bashir and, and these these fake documents that he was able to produce and so on. He did introduce uh, Bashir to Diana at an apartment in Knightsbridge. The three of them sat. And um, during the course of that discussion, this was the first time that Bashir had actually met Diana. Now, during the course of that discussion, Bashir... And Lord Dyson accepted 
accepted all what I'm about to describe, um, Bashir came up with a whole series of the most extraordinary um, falsehoods, which um, suggested that Diana was under threat, that that people in her circle were taking money, that yes, friends, well, including Patrick, including Patrick Jefferson, exactly. Yeah. Because, I mean, in some ways, it, it was pushing an open door. She was keen to get her story out, wasn't she? Keen to talk, to, a bit like Prince Andrew with Newsnight, you know, keen to, 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 to get her side of the story. I, so was this all necessary? Well, it, it's interesting, um, and do you say that, because I have, you know, people have said that, um, yes, Martin Bashir cut a few corners, but Princess Diana couldn't wait to... Spill the beans. Yeah. Now, I I think you've got to analyze that a little bit more closely. If I said to you, look, Andrew, I've got some documents here, and they prove that, you know, your 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 best friend wants to have you murdered, right? Your best mate got documents, yeah, have you murdered, best friend. Another document here says that uh you know, X in your circle is taking money from the secret services and somebody else in your circle is taking money from News International. Now, talk to me. Now, makes you... Makes me paranoid. Yeah. You, well, it changes the dynamics of the whole Absolutely. You are a different yeah. person. You are yeah. a different person. And yeah. I have brought along trust? by way of kind of props here. One, one of the... Absolutely. Before you do that, because sure, I'm sure, dying sure, to get sure, to sure, this, sure, sure, can sure, I just sure. rewind a little bit? Absolutely. Just yeah. for the purpose of the, the viewer or the listener yeah. who doesn't yeah. know the story as well as we do, because we, we all get so excited. We, <clears throat> we tend to brush our head too quickly. These, the initial forge statement was the foot-in-the-door moment, wasn't it? With Spencer, that got him into the room with Diana, where he then escalates the fantasy, if you like. And I think I mentioned that he was so charming. And But there was more than charm yeah. to Martin. He was very adept at wrapping people up in a kind of s- series of shared confidences and gossip. And the fact that he was privy to amazing information that other people couldn't get. There was something quite attractive in that to many people. I mean, including colleagues like myself. So you could absolutely see when he got in the room with someone like Diana, especially if he's kind of proved his worth already with these this statement that they've shown the brother, then he's actually he's already won. Because once he's in, she's not going to say no. No, you're absolutely he's, right. He's on side, basically. Absolutely right. But when you say, uh, you know, you're so impressed with information that nobody else could get, well, he was making it up. He was making it up in the back room. That's why other people couldn't get it. That's why he had... So let's, let's go to the document the then that you found. No, no, no. I just going to, to, to say in terms of um, what, what was... Okay, so what was Diana's state of mind at the moment where she actually did... Uh, you know, decide to talk and, and, and let it all let it all hang out. And this is this is an absolutely extraordinary uh, document. Um, this is the memo put together by her lawyer, Lord Mishkon, um, her own personal solicitor. Um, Diana came to well, he didn't go to visit Mishkon. Mishkon Lord Mishkon came to Kensington Palace with two um, secretaries on the. Thirtieth uh, of October, nineteen ninety-five, and that date's significant because the interview, the Panorama interview, took place on November the fifth. So we're, we're 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 less than a week away from the interview here. Now, um, Patrick Jefferson was actually at this meeting. So we so Princess Diana, Lord Mishcon, two secretaries, and Patrick Jefferson in a room in Kensington Palace. 
Diana had called this meeting because she wanted to put on record certain really, really important things that she believed to be true, so much so that she was going to tell mm. her lawyer, Lord Mishcon. And this is the, and this is the memo. Now, um, I won't read it all, but the key elements are, and this is quite bizarre, she believed that the Prince of Wales, as was then Prince Charles, was planning to kill not just her, Diana, but also Camilla Parker Bowles in order to pursue a relationship with the then nanny, who's always known as Tiggy Leg Burke, Alexandra Pettifer, her name now. So Diana tells her lawyer that, look, I have on very good authority, I can tell you, and I want you to take it down and for posterity, my husband is going to kill me and he's going to kill Camilla because he wants to get, 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 carry on a relationship with the nanny. There's that. Okay. Pretty, pretty, pretty jaw dropping. She says that um, she has private information here where the Queen would be abdicating in April, i.e. April 96, and the Prince of Wales would assume the throne, um, and, and various other things. And this is absolutely extraordinary stuff. Mm. Now, we, it has never been... I, I'm not aware of documents that absolutely established that the person who put the, these extraordinary things into um, Diana's mind was Martin Bashir. So one has to accept that. I, I don't know, but I think one but can who say, else well, would? well, absolutely. There is also um, very, I, I would argue, very strong evidence. And here's another thing I brought along, which is actually a fax which Martin Bashir sent to Earl Spencer on the 26th of September, 95. So we're whatever, you know, four weeks, five weeks before the interview. This is a fax from Martin Bashir to Charles Spencer. And Martin says, uh, there's about to be a concerted fight back by Miss Leg Burke. Rumours have been circulating about recurring intimacy between her and a particular individual. One aide witnessed outdoor pursuits of a different kind. Now, uh, <laughs> here we go. It's like uh, something out of a region. It's not, not, it's oh, absolutely. Not absolutely. Ugandan relations. Outdoor uh, pursuits. Outdoor pursuits. <laughs> there can only be one of his culprit, da 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 da. Um, I think you should inform your sister, ASAP. Now, and by now, Charles is accepting these kind of bizarre communications no no he from... no he's not what what happened was and i think it's it's true to say at that point and it happens in families uh charles spencer's relations with diana were, were warm and loving but relatively infrequent i think after he'd introduced her to um to Bashir and heard sat through this meeting um uh, Charles Spencer says that he literally took down and one side, look, I'm sorry, sis, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry I've wasted your time. The guy is a crackpot. I have, have nothing more to do with him because uh, Charles Spencer's point is that things that he was told uh, by Bashir absolutely didn't tally with things that Bashir was saying at this three-way meeting. Interesting. And he said to Diana, look, what 
have, have nothing nothing more to do with him. But also some um, of these statements like that could have been verified elsewhere, I mean, a matter of just talking to old members of staff and getting a sense of things. You know, why should yeah. Bashir be such an expert? Well, quite. And, and, and that, that's what, I mean, Charles Spencer, he, um, and this actually came as a massive, massive surprise, I think, to, to the BBC, as a former correspondent and indeed a historian, I think actually a very good uh, historian. He is absolutely a note taker and a note keeper. Yeah. And he uh, went to his, um, you know, his, his archive uh, you know, two, two, two years ago when, when this began to surface again. And he'd got his notebooks. He'd got his notebook from this meeting in um, September the 19th, 1995, where he sat with Bashir and there were 32 extraordinary allegations, including Gosh. such things as, you know, Prince Edward has got AIDS and, you know, I mean, just crazy, crazy stuff that, that um, um, Charles Spencer had, had the notes for. Yeah. You know. Gosh. Um, yeah. Well, let's just try and pull the focus back a little mm. bit to the BBC mm. because uh, what an extraordinary story. I don't think I knew, I didn't think I knew this, about that. Exactly, yeah. He gets, obviously, Diana doesn't listen to her brother. She mm. does the interview. Mm. Within weeks, there are rumours that there's trouble on the Panorama team. Mm. There's been arguments in the office. People have been told, to, I think, F off by the editor when they went to mm. see him. Mm. Um, and kind of for quite a few years, that's where it lay. People talked about this kind of cloud. But whenever anybody of importance at the BBC was asked, they were referred to the fact that Tony Hall, who, who was head of current affairs at the time, became director general, the most important man at the BBC. He had run a little inquiry. He's a Mandarin. He's very smooth. He's very plausible. And he basically told people, including me, actually, when I interviewed him for something, that we'd looked into this. There were reprimands handed out. Things weren't done as they should have been. But we're all convinced it was a fairly minor thing compared to the seriousness of the story and that Diana would have talked anyway. Plus, she's written us a letter that's saying, I was very happy with the interview and there's no issues. And so basically, can you go away? Now, during this time, the people who were on the losing side of the argument, shall we say, the malcontents, the people on the Panorama team who had complained, they all suffered to, to a certain extent damage from this. Their careers don't perhaps go as well as they had hoped. Nobody's kind of thrown to the wolves. Oh, I'm sorry, Matt Weasley was thrown to the wolves. He was fired, the graphic designer. The the more senior execs were sort of, you know, their careers were not perhaps as successful as somebody at the time might have hoped. I mean, I, I would have predicted Harry, for example, would be an editor of Panorama. It didn't work that way. And I think for quite a long time, there was a sort of feeling that, you know, am I paranoid or was I wrong? You know, it's quite nasty when you just don't really know what's happened. So the, the only reason I go into this is that before you came along, and I think it is that really large down to you, all that was out there was that there'd been a bank statement and it hadn't really mattered. And a few people had caused an unnecessary fuss. And if you had a late night drink with Steve Hewlett, and I did a few of those, one in particular, he would say that deep down it was about professional jealousy. Mm. So that set the scene for your intervention in the story. And none of these people spoke out at this stage. I mean, were they paid off? Did they feel that there was no point speaking, that their careers no. would have been even more damaged? Nobody wanted to run the story. The mail touched on it. Well, Andy, you should tell us. Well, this. no, the, absolutely. The, the, um, the mail, mail on Sunday, but in the interview, as, as, as we said, was in November of 1995. And as you say, you know, there's a bit of a 
still bad, bad smell about this and da, da, da. And then this, it actually did surface in April of 1996. And the Mail on Sunday ran a, um, you know, a front page splash and stuff inside. And they really got really very, very close to uh, the truth. They actually had um, copies of these uh, bank statements that um, Bashir had produced. But the BBC at that point um, played a very, very, very straight bat. They insisted on calling them mock-ups, um, almost suggesting that they were kind of graphics that hadn't quite been uh, completed or something and didn't, uh, didn't actually accept, C- crucially, didn't admit, and the Mail on Sunday weren't able to establish, prove, that these documents had actually been shown to Earl Spencer. That was the key. If if Martin Bashir and the BBC could claim that, yes, okay, we, you know, a graphic artist made up some kind of artwork, you know, a mock-up, and, uh, that's, not, that's not particularly sinister or suspicious. If that <laughs> mock-up is then shown to somebody, uh, you say, well, well why? What, what, what's happening here? And the BBC did not admit that. I mean, Lord Dyson, I I must say, Phil, I, I, I'm very, very interested in, in, in how the BBC handled this. I'm, I'm sort of much more interested in that than in actually what Martin Bashir did, because to be perfectly honest, I take the view that he was an enormously successful, enterprising, clever um, journalist who just saw the prize, you know, had his eyes on the prize and absolutely grabbed it. If if the subject of his inquiries had been a, a people trafficker or a drug smuggler, he'd be a hero. Fated, yes. You know. The so, means justifies So the essentially, what I'm saying is, I think he was a bad apple, a, you know, forgive me, but a scumbag journalist, and there have been such people over the years. To me, what is very interesting and hasn't ever really had, you know, the the, the focus um, it deserves is what did the BBC do? They are the grown-ups in this. They are the people who uh, one can assume have the moral focus. So you ask yourself, well, who knew what when? Mm. And when you do that, that is when it gets very... Um, very murky. uncomfortable, very uncomfortable and murky. And I think, I think I'm right in saying, and you're the historian here, Andrew, but I think history will absolutely not be kind to the BBC on this because this story, it's one of those stories that just, it will never go away. And I mean, over centuries, it won't go away because bizarrely, even though one day quite soon, I think Jimmy Savile will be forgotten and, you know, Cliff Richard will be forgotten and maybe even the Hutton Inquiry will be forgotten. It's just like we're still intrigued as to who was Anne Boleyn, what did she do, and, yes, and who yes. was she at very, it very with the point. Lutonist and, you know, what... what well, this goes right to the core know, of the BBC, right to the top. Well, it, it over is, a number of years. I think it's Diana. I think mm. historians, you know, when we're mm. you know, pushing up daisies, we'll be asking themselves, how was it? that this woman effectively resigned from being Queen of England on television. Mm. What's going on there? Yeah. People will be asking that question in 200 years, 300 years, 500 mm. years' time. And important. the part of the answer to that question will be, well, there was this guy 
who told her that her husband was trying to have her murdered. Now, that is a story for, mm. for the ages. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's yeah. like, yeah. To, you know. So, 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 one of the more remarkable things, you, and I'm sure you're going to explain how mm. you did it in a moment, mm. one of the things you found was that the Board of Governors had been told that there'd been an inquiry and that there was it was being taken care of. And I think the word is malcontents were being dealt with, which sounds very Stalinist. Perhaps it's not for nothing that George Orwell based 1984 on the BBC's structure, but it does sound very sinister. I don't know how you ever got that document, but I think that might have been one of the key things that you were able to find out. It absolutely was. What, I mean, I've just, I've actually got the uh, document you're referring to actually here, um, fill a copy of it. Yeah, okay. So let, let me let me just skate, skate through briefly my my role in this. As I say, 1996, Mail on Sunday, absolutely get very very close to the um, to the to, to the story. It then, you know, sadly, obviously, 1997, um, Diana dies, and kind of uh, oddly. Uh, pendulums kind of swing in interest here. There was a there was a period, uh, years succeeding Diana's death, when it, she wasn't quite as, um, you know, the media wasn't so interested as they subsequently b- become again. Um, so the 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 story sort of bubbled along. I, I will say this: I, when I started to look in, look into this, I, which was in the, in fact, two thousand six, two thousand seven, I was absolutely astonished how much of the scandal was actually there to be seen in plain sight. I've got here um, the, the history of Panorama. It, it's by a from Panorama correspondent, Richard. It's a sort of semi-official history. It's not not some wacky book. It's a pretty official. There's a really full account, a really full account of the scandal in there. And this book by Andrew Morton, which is not his famous one where Diana contributed to, this is a 2004 book. And I've, I've interviewed Andrew about this. I'm really impressed at Andrew Morton's, um, there's a lot of Andrew Morton that he's a good he's, old school I agree. Journalist I think he's a very good with writer. With a pencil and a note. But, and, and he's a good writer too. Yeah, but I but, agree. For his work on, on, on Wallace Simpson and, and The yeah. Duke of Windsor, very good. And Andrew Morton went to see Matt Wiesler, who is the graphic artist who um, Gets the job. Know, did the stuff. And so this book, 2004, as I said, there are photographs of the fake bank statements. And the caption of the picture is, copies of fake bank statements that the BBC reporter Martin Bashir had forged in October 1995. And I, this is, book came out in 2004. I'm saying, hang on, um... So Martin Bishop forged bank statements, and I can buy a book, and there's a photograph of it. Like, yeah. why, why, why isn't aren't people jumping up and down here? And, and I began to sort of put in FI requests to the BBC, freedom saying, of information, freedom of information, exactly. Knowing because I know the BBC like like you do, Phil, and, and the BBC, you know, a lot of paper, a lot of paper, a lot of archives, and asked for to see. Um, notes, minutes, documents relating to any inquiries concerning Martin Bashir. And they came back uh, with a reply that said, oh, I'm sorry, there is nothing. We, we have nothing. We have nothing because uh, it was an exclusive and it was all word of mouth and we have nothing. Thank you very much. Away you go. And that became very, very important because that was 2007. 
that they had said to me in writing, we have no notes, no records, nothing to do at all with this. Um, life then sort of moved on, you know, kind of day job. I, I make documentary films, et cetera, et cetera. So you did this, what, because you were going to make a television program or you just thought it was a good story as a journalist? Well, well I, I don't know how much time you got. I mean, literally why I did it back in 2007, Andrew, was this. I'll try and keep this as quick as I can. I had been to see the wonderful play by Peter Morgan, the guy who writes The Crown. Mm-hmm. Small world, Peter Morgan. He wrote a um, wonderful play called Frost Nixon. And, and just to show how small a world this is, I don't know if you can remember who the third character is in Frost Nixon. I'll tell you, it's John Burt. Right. Oh, yes, John Burt. So, yeah, Frost Nixon. Who becomes the director general absolutely. of the BBC at Frost the time Nixon of this. is about, you know, the, the incredible 1970s uh, interviews of David Frost yeah. and Richard Nixon. Wonderful play by Peter Morgan. I went to see that at the Donmar Warehouse in 2006. Came out of the theatre thinking, my God, that is brilliant. That is brilliant. What other interviews are there that I can find? <laughs> and I can write, you know, the next... Award-winning play. Award-winning play. Right. Award-winning play. And I said, whoa, Diana Bashir, Diana Bashir, Diana Bashir. That's fantastic. Started to look into it. For, for that reason, I thought here is... I, I didn't Great drama. knew the scandal mm. or whatever. I didn't, didn't know at all. I just knew that this had been an absolutely game-changing interview. That, and, and around game-changing interviews, there's always an interesting backstory. That's why I began to look into it. And at that point, I began to get these books and, hang on, you know, four pictures of forged bank statements. What, 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 what's all this about? Um, in 2005, on the 10-year anniversary of the Panorama interview... BBC. Oh yes. Made, Self-congratulatory. Uh, they made a puff an hour-long arena documentary. You know, very fancy. You got the floating bottle, and you got all this sort of stuff. With Tony Hall, uh, John Burt, uh, Steve Hewlett was in it. Congra- self-congratulatory piece. Looking back at this amazing interview, when we now know what those people knew. At the time. Yes, it's shocking, isn't it? Absolutely shocking. And I'll tell you one one interesting, uh, hopefully interesting thing, and that's this. I, I have, you know, since I got involved in this, had, you know, reasonably close dealings with um, Earl Spencer. And he uh, told me this. In 2005, he was approached by the, the BBC to give an interview for this, um, for this you know, 10-year anniversary documentary. And he, he showed me the re- re- reply he sent. He, he replied to them saying, absolutely not. Not only that, I'm telling you now, and this is 2001, I'm telling you now that your man, Martin Bashir, uh, is a, you know, not exact words, but anyway, a liar, cheat. He, he did this, he did that, he did that. Um, it's an absolute scandal um, and you, you ought to be taking action. And he sent this to the producer who had invited him and he said, Furthermore, this is so important, I'm copying this to the Director General. Mm. And I've seen a, a, a copy of the uh, document that was received by the BBC, which was stamped um, governance and so on. So, so it did get it into got received. something. And who was the Governor General at that point? Mark Thompson. Mark right. Thompson. So he was um, aware. So, so several Director Generals oh, knew and did nothing. There are actually, I think, four. Tony Hall, John Burt, Mark Thompson, and indeed, I would argue, our current Director General. Absolutely. But but so that in 2005, Charles Spencer... Yeah. He it, should have gone on the programme and, and just sort of blurted it out. It would be cut, I suppose. Well, but anyway, uh, I don't know how, how, how did we get... 
No, yeah, I, I, want, I want to get to this document. So you, oh, yeah, absolutely. you, you sure, find sure, a way sure. with your freedom of information. Absolutely, absolutely. And then, and then okay, so we get to the um, 90, 2020, which, of course, is the 25th anniversary of the... So this is 12 or 13 years of you just badgering them. Uh, well, of course, I wasn't, you know, after I had sort job. of badgered them mm. and, and got... You know, really not not very hard First at all. of all, they say there are no documents. Then they yeah. say, oh, maybe there's a few, and then well, that 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 let, let's say so 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 twenty five years um, have gone by, um, and I think one interesting thing because I know you, you you guys are into scandals. I'd be interested to know what you think about this. I think there is a level of badness that is sort of almost protective notoriety. And I, and by that, I mean this. Uh, the reason, I think, one of the reasons that Jimmy Savile didn't get turned over before he did was that people were saying, well, look, come on, everybody knows he's yeah. dodgy. You know, what, what, Interesting. What, what's the news? What, you know, what, what, you know, tell me something I don't know. I think when it came to the crunch when Newsnight should transmit or not, I'm sure that that wasn't the game changer, but I think that would have been the look, come on. We know, and I think that probably is true also with Mottamish. Um, yeah, because when it came to the 25th anniversary, uh, time was, was was approaching, and and I was suggesting with this the, the production company I was working with at the time, Blink Films, we were suggesting this to Channel Four to look at as a something that you know we absolutely get into. <laughs> the problem we initially faced was. We would say, look, it's amazing, forged documents, you know, da, 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 all, all this stuff. And they say, oh, God, wow, what a story. What a great story. Um, has this been anywhere? And we'd say, well, yeah, it's been in like a book and it's been in that. And they, hmm. I know, okay. I know, that's okay. typical it's Channel like, 4. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, well, I don't know. I said the same that, in a program not long ago about the briefings against Diana. Yeah, yeah. I think I've one day it. that could become a much bigger yeah. story. So, yeah. so it's like, yeah. I've, I've got it with they just, sit, they just sit there. They just sit yeah. there. They? You know, it's an amazing story. You know, I've yeah. never heard of it, but it was in a book sort of like 15 years ago. That, and it made no know. impact. Interesting. Even with Andrew Morton. No one picked well, that's because nobody had actually got what, what, what Andrew well, was about okay. to show yeah. us. So we then... The MacGuffin, I think they call it. Effectively... Uh, I then renewed my FOI um, approaches to the BBC, and we're talking here 2020. Now, this is, uh, you know, uh, 2020. And they then came back with a really bizarre initial reply that said, well, look, all right, we accept that we told you in 2007 that we hadn't gotten a thing. We actually have got something, but it's protected by journalistic privilege we don't have to give it to you so that was initially their position what then happened it was really the crunch moment and you know uh, phil you've worked on lots and lots of um, documentaries and they take a long time to um long time to put together and then they they're like a mayfly you know <laughs> flickers and dies in 45 minutes on the screen you know and it spent months and sometimes years putting it together and you when you're making um you know, problematic or controversial claims, then you, you you have to seek what's called the right of reply from the person who, who you may be saying uncomplimentary things about, in this case, corporately, the BBC. So um, the BBC had been sent this list of, you know, question or points that we were going to raise, and they had to come back to us, obviously, before the programme can air, in order that we can 
view them and, and, and including the program and, and reflect them. Now, two days, 48 hours before the documentary film was due to go to air, uh, the BBC right of reply came back from the press office, you know, two, three pages, whatever, saying, no, you've got this wrong, you've got this wrong, we did this. But it, but it wasn't terribly, you know, significant and, and didn't alter our program. 20 minutes later from the BBC arrived a bundle of documents released to me under Freedom of Information with a covering letter that said, oh, look, um, we said it was covered by journalistic privilege, but because of the interest in the case, we've decided to release this to you. Wow. So, okay, well, I've got 48 hours to go here, you know, 48 hours before the programme. This is really, really weird. And I... I thought it was really weird at the time. I still think it's very, very weird. And maybe if we've got the time, I can explain where that has gone. I've heard but, similar things, documents re- released on the eve of a hearing. Well, quite. So, so, and to me, what was really deeply unsettling about it is this, that all corporations have press offices. I, I put it this way, that a press office is sort of allowed to be economical with the truth. You want them to tell the truth, but they are there effectively to spin for the Corporation. Mm-hmm. That's that. You know, that's what you're getting. To me, the BBC has quite a. I would argue quite a large FOI staff. I think they've got maybe ten or a dozen people. To me, the people sitting in the FOI office, I have them down as, if you like, you know, we can you, you know, Boy Scouts and Girl Guides fighting the good fight for freedom of information. So there's the press office who are allowed to be economical with the truth, and these men and women need to be profligate with the truth. Exactly. Trying to get, I'm funny enough, I, I had, did something with Martin Rosenbaum Boehm this, this week and he, he was working, using FOI to get information for programmes and there was a department, as you say, trying to stall people yeah. getting any information from the BBC. Yeah, yeah. So to, to, to get the press release and then 20 minutes later to get the FOI documents, that was kind of odd. That, okay. like, we, so who, me and our tens of thousands of listeners you know, want to know what's in the bundle. Okay, so there were 67... Uh, documents. Um, a lot of it was kind of pretty anodyne, you know, communication backwards and forwards. One of them, and it was actually page 43 of the um, bundle, that without which, without page 43, I mean, literally Martin Bashir would still be editor of religion at the BBC if they had not have released this particular page here. And what it says... Uh, some, of, some of it's actually redacted by the BBC, but the absolutely crucial bit is this, that um, this is a report by Tony Hall, who then was head, head of, of current, current affairs. affairs. The man in charge of inquiring into the Yes, exactly. Initially. Yes, a report by Tony Hall to the Board of Governors. And these are notes. They look like and notes. If you don't know, maybe mm. some of our viewers and listeners are not British. Mm. The Board of Governors is like a list of the great and the good oh, yeah, of, the, of, of Britain. Yes. I mean, are, these are people that... Yeah. The word respectable hardly comes close. That's right. There's a, there's a lord here, Lord Cox, the Sir Christopher Bland, Sir Kenneth Bloomfield. There are kind of bishops and lords you know, and, like, and, and so, businessmen and women okay, and so, so on. So this is the audience then for and the Tony male. Hall, I think, goes to the House of Lords, doesn't he? Oh, he did. He did later, absolutely, as indeed did John Burt, the um, boss. But anyway, the, the key, key um, bit of this bundle of documents that come to me... Uh, says this. Uh, Tony Hall is describing how Martin Bashir is pursuing the um, Diana 
inquiry. And it says, Bashir decided that to move the story on, he needed to get to the Princess of Wales and that the best route that might be through Earl Spencer. Eventually, they met. Earl Spencer told him, redaction, 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 redaction. He showed him some documents, including this man's bank statement. Now, that might... How do empires fall because of that? What that says is that Earl Spencer had, in fact, stolen the bank statement of this third party, showed it to Martin Bashir, and then Martin Bashir, for reasons that are never explained, had a fake bank statement mm-hmm, made up. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically that. Now, what happened was, we, we read this, and like, we're still 48 hours before transmission. We're, we're reading this, and we're thinking, look, this is really bizarre. The BBC have put this out. This really, if you like, it, you know, they're, they're suggesting there's a plot, there's a conspiracy between uh, involving Earl Spencer, Martin Bashir, stealing bank statements, making forges. What, what, what is going on here? What, what does this? And the BBC, does... in a sense, is the court in the middle. I mean, rather than anything else. Um, if you like, I mean, their 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 man Martin Bashir is doing something that is very odd. But yes, the BBC corporately is like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, they're, they're not guilty of anything, as it, mm. as it were. But we thought, look, what, what's all this about? I thought the only way that one can get any sense on this at all is to literally contact Earl Spencer. And just, I, I, I emailed him. I, I had, had no contact with Earl Spencer before this point at all. No contact whatsoever. Email to him, say, look, El Spencer, this, I'm, I'm me, I'm doing this, I'm doing this film. The BBC have given me this document from Tony Hall to the governor saying that you did this. Mm. Uh, what, what gives? You know, what, any, 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 I got um, very quickly a response from his secretary saying, thank you very much indeed. Would you, would, would, would you be, you know, would you would would you, would it be okay if Earl Spencer gave you a call and talked to you? I said absolutely, it would be absolutely. Now this, um, I'd sent it the evening before the day of our film's transmission. We're now on the morning of transmission of the film. <laughs> Earl Spencer called me up. Hello, nice nice to chat. Um, we talked for forty five minutes, and during that forty five minutes, he gave the whole lowdown on the whole. You know. Bashir story, meetings with Diana and, and so on. Which so nobody forth. up to that point knew anything about. No. So he no, kept quiet absolutely. for 20 years. Well, he... There are reasons, and I think when you, when you look at it, very good reasons, you might think, well, hang on, why? What, what, what's going on? I mean, that takes us slightly off 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 the point i mean i'm very very happy to, to to address that i think and i'm not a you know spokesperson here for earl spencer but i have thought well yes why was that the case if you think about it andrew if once diana had gone out and done her panorama interview opinion was a little bit divided i mean should she have done it shouldn't she have done it you know there was an opinion polls and all the rest of it if her bro had come out and said Ugh, this guy that she's just talked mm. to, he's an absolute chancer. He's a liar. He'd be like, <clears throat> oh, so, <clears throat> ah, 
you know what I mean? Yes. It wouldn't have been yeah. great. It yeah. wouldn't have been great uh, yeah. for Diana. So you just had to accept the situation. Um, also at that time, um, I think it's absolutely the case that, you know... Well, <laughs> like he also didn't know how his own actions were being described inside the BBC until you told him. Well, that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. That's yeah. why that absolutely right. page 43 is, is the turning point. Absolutely, it was. Absolutely. I can show you as well. It, it, it's, Doesn't it um, also include something at the malcontents? Or am I mixing up no, my documents? No, it does, it does, it does. So I'd it love goes, you to tell us about this. It goes... Um, but it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, why, did, did, did the right hand not know, as you say, what the left hand was doing? I mean, they allowed this stuff to come out having stalled for so long. Well, that's that's a very... Good question. And my, and, and Phil, you're a, a, a documentary um, hand. I have said to many um, people, whoever allowed this to go out into the public domain, it's absolutely extraordinary because that is just so defamatory. It is, it is defamatory. Whether it's libelous is another issue, but it is utterly defamatory. Um, but, you know, would Panorama ever make such a claim? <laughs> uh, and you would say to yourself, if I was, if you were the news editor, I'd come to you and say, I've got a great story, I've got a great story, Phil, I've got a great story. Look, Earl Spencer, he, 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 he sold some bank statements and he gave it to um, this guy. You say, oh, that's a great story. What's your source? And I said, well, ah, it's, it's only one person. And it's actually mm. the person mm. who... Just benefited from it. And indeed, at that point, the BBC did have it, information that Bashir had lied three times. So it's like, what what were they doing? Even, I don't know. Even thinking of putting yeah. that into the... Oh, thank goodness. Well, thank goodness. Thank goodness they did. Let's get on to the... To, to the, me, because mm. my focus is on the BBC and yeah. my friends who I think suffered, yeah. what you also revealed about what happened inside the BBC. Yeah, I'm just looking at the... the um, you you wanted to uh, mention the bit where Tony Hall effectively says there were malcontents and leakers and uh, leakers and malcontents and so on. That is dealt with in this report. I've only brought the first three. Well, to pages me, I just find that. extraordinary that people mm. who I really respect, mm. who I think had the best interest of the BBC and Panorama at heart. Mm-hmm were the ones who suffered. And the ones who looked the other way and yeah. covered things up and didn't... Were, Prospered. What's were rather story? incurious, shall we say. That's yeah. the story. Just carried on in their own sweet way and mm. rose to the top of, well, British society. The glittering prizes, the plum jobs. It, it, as oh, ever yeah. was. And that's why we do our podcast. And that's why people <laughs> like Andy are to be terrifically respected. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you have to um, remember, of course, that... Uh, I don't know. My my, my view, it, it would be, I think, too easy to say that the cover-up, and we are allowed to call it a cover-up. I mean, Lord Dyson accepted that it was such. Um, the cover-up was to protect the good name or the, of, of the BBC. I actually don't accept that. I think the cover-up was to protect jobs. It was to protect, um, at that time, John Burt has said himself that he feared he would be sacked merely for having allowed the interview with Diana to go ahead because of complicated reasons. Um, he hadn't told the then chairman, um, Duke, Duke Hussey. Right, whose um, wife was a lady in waiting for the wife Queen. Was, absolutely, and was in the news it is, not quite many recently. Weeks ago. So um, the merest whiff of scandal about it at the time would have meant, in, in my view, immediately just John Burke, clear your desk, Tony Hall, John Burt had surrounded himself, it seems to me, with this cohort of appointees 
who um, owed their whole loyalty and positions to Bert. If Bert went, they all went. You know, the, these exquisitely educated heads of this and that putting into effect the hugely misconceived Bertian, you know, mission to explain. Um, people who, in my view, were, you know, the wrong kind of clever. They were <laughs> like the quasi-quartings of, you know, quasi-quarting, tremendously clever man, just not great as a Chancellor of the Exchequer. These people had all come from, you know, Oxford and Cambridge there first. It just they weren't very good very good journalists. And when they were faced with a very, very smart journalist like um, Martin Bashir, who you know pulled pulled this huge flanker, they just didn't know what to do. Well, they're all and, and that was, is their instinct to protect a themselves, b the institution, but also I, I guess you have to ask. And I did have a, a, a conversation. I talked I talked to John Ware about for his mm-hmm. program. Um, with 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 Steve Hewlett, and I wouldn't put Steve actually in the same camp as the sort of the panjandrums. No, no, no. He I was agree. slightly, slightly sort of more the leather jacket, yeah. edgier type. Of course, they they, they quite like mixing with people like that, mm. slightly rougher edge, and and who, who could get big scoops, and they loved mm. that. But I think deep down, and I think he told me this one night in Australia after a few drinks, he knew that there were stones that hadn't been looked under. Mm and that there were things that could come out of the shadows, and that there'd been a lack of curiosity, and I think maybe even he was applying that to himself. I don't know whether you'd agree with that. I mean, he was effectively the editor of that show, the producer of that interview. Did he not want to know how the omelette had been made? Or do you think he knew and didn't care? I I don't know, Phil. I mean, all, those are all good questions, but I wouldn't even really seek to answer them because, um, you know, Steve Hewlett is no longer alive. He's not here, not here to answer for himself. And it's impossible to know. I, I it should be said he was much loved in our industry. Absolutely. absolutely I know yeah. he was, he was a terrifically nice guy and people mm. really loved. He had a radio show that everybody liked. And mm. Mm. I think, um, I think that is actually, it was a corporate loyalty, wasn't there? Um, and it also clearly these people's careers prospered. I think the appalling thing is the people who spoke out, its careers didn't prosper. Yeah, principally um, um, Matt, Matt Wiesler, who has been... Um, yes, there is that, that one of the yeah. best things you've done, actually, in all this work is get those men some compensation yeah. and also an explanation. Uh, and their reputations restored. They're People like to, Patrick Jefferson. Pa- well, I think Patrick Jefferson, Diana I, went to a grave thinking Jefferson, yeah. who'd loyally supported her, had, been, had betrayed. Absolutely. And Patrick Jefferson, that, that's, I must say, I do feel a little you know, warm glow of um, having yeah. done something worthwhile there because having spoken to Patrick Jefferson at length about this, he genuinely, as, as, you, as you say, he, right. he thought like, what, 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 what went wrong? What yeah. went wrong? He he absolutely was, um, you know, Diana was very, very important to him. His work with her was very, very important to him. And it was only through the things that, you know, we were able to help bring out that he became aware of a lot of things he wasn't aware of before, you know. So, yeah, I think I think that's it. Um, so is this, now the story is, well, a lot of it is out in the public domain. Mm. Is there another chapter to be investigated? Are you still actively pursuing well, it? And, and, and should some heads roll now? Well, let, let's see. I mean, I, I do think, and this isn't just, um, you know, I think journalists, uh, sometimes journalists who get involved in a big story, they, they come up, they're, they're reluctant to sort of let it go. And that's a little bit sad. You know what I mean? You, <laughs> you see that 
sometimes for years, you know, people just let it go. But no. I think it's I, good. You've got to well, keep at it. It's I mean, if because, you hadn't kept at it for 20 years, this story would have died. Well, you know, sure, You need sure. to be uh, Absolutely. Persistent. But But I do think there is a very valid and, and legitimate um, bit, bit of this story, which is very, very much worth looking at. And, and it's because, I mean, what we've been talking about here largely happened 25, 20, Six years ago, it is already you know receding into history. But what I'm actually interested in is what happened in the latter part of 2020. Uh, you know, actions performed by the people who are still running the BBC today. And what I'll, I'll try and keep it as, as simple simple as I can. Some of it is just utterly bonkers, and it will sound like bonkers to you guys. I think what I am absolutely determined to to get my hands on is the uh, to to get a take on the BBC's decision-making process when they decided to release to me in October 2020 document A, let's say we've called it page 43, this Mm -hmm. this absolutely riveting document. They decide to release that document, but they don't release other documents that we now know exist. We didn't know they existed at the time. We now do know they exist because of Lord Dyson. Now, one of them in particular is an eight-page timeline of events that you know uh, uh, describing the Tony Hall's inquiry, and it's it, it's absolutely extraordinary stuff. It ends with the deathless words. So you that, now ha- you have it now, but you didn't we have, have it now. But the BBC didn't release it right. when they released the other side. Essentially, my my claim, and it will be tested before a, a court before too long, is this, that the BBC released exculpatory material, material that made the BBC look good, and they withheld incriminatory material. It's as simple as that. They had a choice before them to select which documents would be released and which would not be released, and... You know, that selection process was got through. I mean, that's always the problem with these requests. I mean, the people who, in a sense, choose to release them are the people who... Well, absolutely. I mean, there's no independent scrutiny whatsoever. Absolutely. You've had this with Mountbatten for years. I've had it for so many cases. I mean, you've got to rely on their honesty. Yeah. But I'm... It's it's kind of... I'm in a... (laughs) The difficult position. I I think the case is proceeding as, as I really would wish. But the difficult position I'm in is that the people who are being asked to come clean about what actually happened are the very people. It is literally, they are both uh, defendant and witness for the prosecution. <laughs> literally, literally. <laughs> it is very, you know. W1A. <laughs> well, you know, and so what I've asked is I want to see emails that uh, explain the why they decided to release document A but not document B. What, 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 yes. Let me see these emails. Now, I'll keep this really short. And as I say, it is utterly bonkers. They, the BBC initially came back and said, okay, yep, Mr. Webb, thank you for your request. We can confirm we do have, you know, documents. We're not, not saying they're, you know, sinister documents, but we do have documents, to, you know, the, the sort of documents you're asking about. Well, you do have them, but you can't, we, we have them, but we're not going to release them to you because they're covered by on the one hand, legal privilege, which is section 42 of the yeah. Freedom of Information Act, and another section, section 43. We don't even, I, I can't explain what it's for, but you don't even need to know. Section 43, section 42, we're not going to give it to you, right? I then protested, there was an internal review, the BBC come back and say, no, we're 
I'm not going to give them to you. We've done an internal review. And internal review by the very people who we're trying person. to get it from. I, I think it was, actually, I do think it was the same person who did the first. Yeah, so. anyway, absolutely. Whatever. Internal review, no, we looked at it again and you can't have them, da, 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 da. I then go on to the ICO, which are the people, as you know, who yep. run the Freedom of Information. The These regulator. The, people, the regulator. Cool. Right what's that mean? Sorry, ICO. The ICO is the Information Commissioner's Office. I see. Right. They're the people who are in charge of seeing that the Freedom of Information Act is, um, you know, carried out. And starved of funds for years. Yeah. And the so ICO, they can't do their job. Oddly, apparently they only uh, take this course in, in about uh, 2% of cases, 1 in 50. So 49 cases they'll check out, what one, one they'll take. So they did agree to take up the case. And they said to the BBC, right, all right, we'll accept your legal protection, Section 40, but we're not going to accept the other one. You've got to hand it over to Mr. Webb. The BBC at that point, this is where it gets really bonkers. The BBC came up back and said, oh, look, I'm terribly sorry, we misspoke. We actually don't have anything. When we said we had, and when we told Mr. Webb in his review we had, we actually haven't got anything. Haven't got anything. Okay. So at that point, the only course before me was to sort of elevate it up the chain to the appeal, to yep. be heard before the judge. And, and, you know, God bless them, they took it up. Months go by. The BBC then came out and said, look, oh, ah, we've just done a search. We've now found them. Gosh. We have found 3,288 emails. Don't ask us, like, whoa, 3,288. And it gets quite interesting because I did some sums and 3,288 emails sounds like a lot of emails anyway. It's, a, it's, it's an enormous number of emails when you consider <clears> the actual <throat> period in which they were generated. Now, I won't bore you with the maths, but it effectively comes down to these emails in, in one particular guy's uh, box were appearing at an average rate of 50 a day for month after month after 50 About a day. About your requests? Yeah, 50 a day. Um, that, again, you could work it out if an average working day. So they're appearing at a rate of about one every eight minutes, week after week, after week, after week. They must love you. Well, um, and so that raises all sorts of questions alone. It's like, well, hang on. Did, did, did you not remember that period, like 10 months ago, when you couldn't, like, go, to, go and have a pee because there'd be 50 em- did, Didn't you remember that? Period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah it's yeah. like, no, whoa. It's completely dishonest. So, 3,288 emails. What they've said is that 98% of them, 98% of them are either irrelevant, which I don't get because they've been selected from a very narrow kept. mailboxes and mm. indeed keywords. It's not, mm. you know, it wasn't about you know, Christmas shopping. These were keywords, you know, mm. Spencer, Diana, Bashir. And very, very specific mailboxes. But anyway, they've said they're irrelevant. They released 71 of them. So you've got 3,288. They've released 71. And I looked at them, and again, pretty anodyne. But there is inter- very interesting information, even within those 71 emails, if you sort of know where to look. And, and I, the analogy I use for this is... Maybe it's not self-aggrandizing, but it's a little bit like the blood spatter analyst mm. who, who is led into the room. Yeah, and on the wall, there's a single spot of blood, right? 
and the blood splash right. I said, right, I got it. You know, the person like was stabbed in the neck, they then <laughs> fell over backwards, they bounced off the sofa, and they had red hair and you know, they're called child. It's only you know, because you, you, it's this forensic sort of examination that you would, you well, it, would understand. Well, it, it's sort Is of, that where it now lies? Because we, we, we need to wrap up at some point fairly well, no, soon. It, it's um, what I've just described, that process of um, investigating these 3,288 emails, of which the BBC has only released 71, that is going to go before a... A judge, you know, a live hearing uh, at a date after, sometime after March of this year. And what I'm asking for is that at the very least, the judge should um, be allowed, if need be, confidential scrutiny of um, these emails that the BBC um, claimed to... uh, You know, uh, either either irrelevant or have legal protection... Um, and so on, because I think it's really important to note, and this is very much in in our submissions. That, yeah, I'm a journalist, and like you, Phil and Andrew, you've done wonderful documentary uh, work um, too. And we 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 sort of love the thrill of you know the thrill of the chase, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but in this case, the BBC, I, I would argue, has lost its moral. It's, it doesn't it's occupy the high ground anymore. No, exactly. It doesn't occupy the high oh. ground because um, it is without, it's beyond dispute that they um, weeded the archive and didn't give to Dyson the most important documents. The real smoking gun documents have gone missing from the BBC archives and it has not been This explained. is a cover up of a cover up. And it's contempt of court. Well, um, it is actually a crime to conceal Mm. Mm. information sought under FOI, but I I think I'm right in saying that it is actually uh, time-limited, six-month time-limited, bizarrely, and um, so on. But what I'm I'm saying is that the BBC has been caught um, hiding documents, um, telling lies, covering up, what, so, what would you like to see happen and what do you think will happen? Well, I would like, absolutely, I'd love scrutiny of, um, and I would very happily <laughs> plough plow through them. I would love, I, I think I would want scrutiny of these um, emails because what I think they will betray, I, I suspect they will betray, is a really um, disgraceful, cynical strategy to point the 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 blame for you know what happened 25 26 years ago at this innocent man uh, Earl Spencer and remove um that that's what i think they foolishly thought would happen when they put this out into the public domain i they they very very foolishly and naively thought that people like me and new Soviet journalists etc would say oh look it's Earl Spencer it's his fault yeah. he did it he did it and you know? what's his position now um Earl Spencer. Yeah. Well, he is. I, I know that he is very interested to see which where this goes, because you would be. You I mean, know. he's letting um, you do the do the heavy lifting. I mean, is there anything he should be doing? Um, I, I, I mean, I, I would stress. I mean, I'm not working either with or for in any way. Uh, you know, it's just that he, I think, but like, like, like Andrew Jefferson. Um, is kind of pleased that there is some journalist who's kind of mm. fo- fo- following all this up. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's what I want. I want to see what happened behind this. Maybe, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe 
Uh, maybe all these emails, these 3,288 emails arriving well, one, one every eight minutes, they maybe would, they were They saying, would have been released. Uh, maybe they were saying, oh, look, we absolutely, look, give, give Mr. Webb this because it'll really help transparency and accountability. And that's what we're all about at the BBC. So, look, send him this. And no, no, I don't think so. Because, um, I mean, how can we trust anything we're now told by the BBC, any of the programmes they make, if this is the well, way I, that they're I, run? I think that's, a, I would argue that's a, I don't, I don't disbelieve the news because you've got certain executives who. But have done you're that saying this goes everything. right to the top. It goes possibly to the current governor general, uh, general. So um, you have to ask. I mean, or people could ask. You know, are there other cover-ups going on on other things now? I don't know. I mean, I think it's long-term um, importance for the the BB. Is it? It just sort of weakens weakens the i mean an, an enormous amount of damage has been done already and if you think about it the crown um you know we, we sort of fondly imagine i think that there are happy villagers in africa you know singing along to the world service theme tune and so on and so forth well may, maybe there are but um there are tens of millions of people now who only know the bbc from minnesota to manila as, wasn't that the outfit that scammed the princess? Mm, mm. And for for years, for decades, as long as the crown is yeah. is, is shown. And while you know the government that, are looking at the charter, I mean, does this well, raise bigger questions? Well, absolutely. And if you think about it, it's a royal charter. It won't be that long before the royal in question is King William. Well, I think we all um, probably still believe yeah. in the BBC and want it to be its best. And I think we should thank Andy, actually. I think the BBC should thank Andy. But Absolutely. anybody who's in history well, or journalism should thank him for, for what he's on earth. Uh, and it wasn't and easy. And there was a great... I don't know whether it was, what do you say? Mm. <laughs> the shield of notoriety or something. Well, no. But there was a long period, I remember it very yeah, well, yeah. where people talked about this stuff, but it never seemed to break through because nobody actually really got the proper documents and then yeah. you got them. So thank you. Yes. And thank you for coming I mean, on our show. Not at all, it's no, been really terrific. I've really feel no, we've had the inside story there on a really important I, maybe issue. Maybe in a few years' time, when you've made another programme, we'll have you back. Yes, Absolutely. keep us posted, because what oh. we tend to do is updates in the course of the show. So once this tribunal happens, we'd love, love to yeah, know Best what, of luck, and thanks again no, you're for all welcome. you've done. You're very welcome. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.